Well, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those in our live venue as well. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. How many of you are enjoying the series on Ruth? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, it's been real good just to get some feedback and testimonies how people have resonated with this. I'm actually starting to enjoy the chick flick. Um, maybe, maybe there's hope for me after all, pun intended. But we've been in a series the last couple of weeks looking at this great book in the Old Testament called Ruth, uh, a series that we're calling Hope Restored. We just feel like that uh, we need now more than ever a time where we put our attention on where real hope is found. That no matter what's going on around you in your life, the Bible calls us to, to be a people who have real, true, lasting hope. And the book of Ruth helps us understand that. Now, uh, if, if you're new with us this morning or you've been out for the past couple weeks, um, uh, just quickly get caught up before we dive into chapter 2. The story starts out very dark. One of the darkest beginnings of a book of the Bible. Um, it's the time of the judges. People are doing whatever's right in their own eyes. There's a famine taking place, so there's a sense of, of being desperate financially. Uh, people are forsaking the promised land of God, Bethlehem. Uh, the story narrows in on a family that runs to Moab. And there in Moab experiences personal tragedy. Naomi, one of the main characters, her husband, Elimelech, dies. Her sons marry Moabite women who are barren for 10 years, and then her sons die. And so this mother-in-law and two daughter-in-laws are left without husbands, without children, without lineage, without hope. It is really, really dark, and the suffering is real. And the responses to that hopelessness is Naomi says, there's every reason in the world to, to believe that I don't have a future. She responds with despair. Orpah says, forget this, I'm going home. And she runs back to Moab to the false gods of Moab. But then Ruth, Ruth has given her life to God. Your God is my God. She is surrendered to Yahweh, and that's why she's able to embrace the suffering, move into her future in Bethlehem. And that's where we pick it up here in chapter 2. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word, as we are doing things differently in Ruth. Let's listen here uh, to the reading of Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. 
have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is God's word. Would you please pray with me? Father, I am convinced that supernatural, eternal things happen in these moments. The people who are here, you have brought them here. And I believe that you have brought them here for a purpose. Lord, I ask that your Spirit would so speak and work in us that we would be a people of hope, real hope, eternal hope. So, I pray um, desperately that you would do what I can't do. Speak to our hearts. Give us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. If John F. Kennedy Jr. had had colic when he was a baby, you might not be alive today. That's actually a scenario that was put forward in Jeff Greenfield's book about alternative histories. What he does, it's really interesting. He goes back and he shows how certain events in American history, had they been altered ever so slightly, had they been changed just a little bit, would have had a ripple effect, a domino effect that would have had a huge impact on life as we know it. One of the examples that he gives is uh, about uh, the Kennedy family. And uh, he talks about a very, what's mostly an unknown story that happened to the Kennedys, uh, or almost happened, back in December of 1960. At the time, President Kennedy it was president-elect, so he hasn't become president yet. Uh, he and his wife have just given birth to their new baby, and um, there is a suicide bomber with dynamite stationed outside their home in Palm Beach, Florida. He has the intent of killing Kennedy. But he, he pauses, he hesitates, he doesn't go through with it because as JFK was leaving the house, Jackie Kennedy walks to the door to say goodbye, holding their baby. The, the bomber hesitates. His conscience begins to work on him. He, he, he says, I'm not going to do this right now. I just can't get myself to do that. And so he, he walked away. He eventually gets caught and arrested. And he says that the reason I stopped, the reason that I hesitated that day is because I saw that child. And what Greenfield does is he begins to build on that and say, but, but what if? What if John F. Kennedy Jr. had been sick that day? 
that it is likely that Jackie does not come to the door, meaning it's very likely that JFK is killed that day, making Lyndon Johnson the president. A man who, unlike Kennedy, would have listened to the top advisors, the military leaders, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Had that happened, it is very likely that there could have been a nuclear confrontation between U.S. and Russia, which would have resulted in an enormous amount of loss of life. And Greenfield says, therefore, you're here today all because a baby in 1960 in Palm Beach, Florida, didn't have colic. Now, it, it would be easy for us to hear that kind of a thing and dismiss that as, that, that is way too hypothetical. But Greenfield has a point. And regardless of what you think about the JFK example, his point is this right here. The ordinary events of life actually contribute to the larger story of your life. Had, had your grandfather not had a headache that day, stopped in the diner for a cup of coffee, met that waitress who had become your grandmother, got married, you wouldn't be here. Had you not had that crush on her, and that's the reason you went to the youth retreat or went to the church service, but there you heard the gospel, you may not have believed. What I've asked all of our services to do, and actually people have come and shared these stories, it's been fascinating how if you will stop and think about your life, there are little ordinary things that had they gone a different direction would have set you on a different course. That one word that was said, that one look that was given, that one decision that was made change the course of your life forever. And that's why we often sit back and think about our own alternative histories. If only I had married him. If only I'd been born there. If only I'd had different parents. If only, if only, if only. Now imagine that at the end of Ruth chapter 1, that's exactly what Naomi would be thinking. She could be thinking about all the alternative histories, all the alternative examples that could have happened so that she wouldn't be in the situation she is now. If only we hadn't gone to Moab. If only my daughters-in-law would have had children if only my sons were still alive. And it feels like so random. It feels so ordinary. And yet, look, I love this, how the narrator starts chapter 2. Verse 1. It is so easy for us to miss this. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Here, here it is. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Why aren't you laughing? 
you should be laughing. In fact, if you were reading this as an Old Testament Jew, you would be laughing. Do you know what? I've got to stop here for a moment because we skip by this and it is a major point. The author is intentionally doing something to you. He's playing with you. That phrase, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, is Hebrew sarcasm. It is a joke. Here's why. The phrase literally means, as luck would have it. Or literally in the Hebrew, it reads like this, as chance chanced it. Now you're thinking, but it's still not funny. What's the punchline? The reason it's meant to be funny is this, as chance would chance it, but an Old Testament Jew doesn't believe in chance. They don't believe in luck. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You've you got to read this like an Old Testament Jew would be reading it. He's trying to say, ha, yeah, it just so happened. It just so happened that Naomi and Ruth return at the time of harvest. And it just so happens that God has given a law where a foreigner like Ruth is able to go out into the fields and glean. God has established the economic system of Israel to reflect his character. That is generosity, compassion, not greed. The law was this. Whatever is left, whatever falls on the ground, don't suck all that profit up. You leave that for the foreigner, for the abandoned, for the poor, so that they will have something to eat. And so it just so happens they're back at harvest. It just so happens Ruth has a law allowing her to go out and glean. And it just so happens she goes out to the fields. And you got to get in your mind that there are hundreds of people out in the fields. The famine has just ended. Everybody's out gathering up grain to eat. And not only that, there are hundreds of fields that have no fences. Just notice this picture just for that kind of imagery. There are no fences out there. It's just land after land after land. Do you have the picture? Hundreds of people in hundreds of fields any mini miny mo and it just so happens Ruth ends up in Boaz's field and oh by the way it just so happens that Boaz is a relative of Naomi and guess what ladies it just so happens he's rich and single it's the best kind, right? And it just so happens that he likes her and shows kindness to her. It just so happens, spoiler alert, they're going to get married. It just so happens that they're going to have a child named Obed. It just so happens that through that child will come the lineage to Jesus Christ. Do you see what the author's trying to say? Wrong field, no Boaz. 
No Boaz, no marriage. No marriage, no Obed. No Obed, no Jesse. No Jesse, no David. No David, no Jesus. No Jesus, no cross. No cross, no resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation. No salvation, eternal condemnation. Don't you see? You owe your salvation to the random field selection of a Moabite girl. It just so happened, that's the best joke I've heard all day. And that's the feeling that you should have. It's like I've shared with you before, uh, one of my favorite stories in, in Jay Leno when he was doing The Tonight Show, the, the jaywalking when he asked the lady on the street, how did Mount Rushmore come into existence? Do you remember that? And she said, erosion. <laughs> erosion? Really? And Jay says, you mean to tell me that wind and water over time formed in the side of a mountain four recognizable faces? And not just four recognizable faces, but four faces of U.S. presidents. And not just four U.S. presidents, but four of the most popular U.S. presidents in history. How in the world do you account for that? And she said, I don't know. Luck, I guess. <laughs> These people were out there driving. Seriously. Like, well, now you're laughing because that's how you should be responding to the text. Of course this didn't just so happen. The point, beloved, the author is trying to get you to understand is there is no rational explanation for how Ruth meets Boaz, but by the sovereign appointment of God. God is on the throne in chapter 1. He's on the throne in chapter 2. In the darkness and in the hope, God is sovereignly in control. And I know that this makes some of us uncomfortable because I've been there. I really have been. It was almost like a crisis of faith in college. But the Copernican revolution, hear me, of the Christian life is this. This is big. you got to tune in is when you start realizing that God does not revolve around your story, you revolve around His. You don't exist for your story, you exist for the story of God. It doesn't mean that your story is not important, it just means your story is a part of a larger redemptive story to bring all things under Christ. And I know that's uncomfortable because it makes you really small, as it should. But I tell you this, you will not be able to embrace suffering or blessing without that perspective on life. The author is saying, this isn't coincidence, this is providence. And it'd be easy for us to dismiss this as, yeah, well, these kind of things just happen in the Bible. That's the beauty of Ruth, is that these are ordinary people. You don't have burning bushes, you don't have parting seas, you, don't, you just have ordinary people living life under the sovereign hand of God. Here's what Kent Hughes writes in his commentary on Luke. Quote, One day my wife Barbara went in for a common surgical procedure. As we were waiting in the lobby, a woman named Susie, a friend of Barbara's niece, just happened to walk through. 
Although she worked in the hospital lab, she never came to that part of the hospital. But on that day, as luck would have it, she needed to use the ATM in the lobby. We chatted for a few moments, and she promised to visit Barbara the next day. During Barbara's surgery, one of the arteries accidentally got nicked. She started to lose blood, and they couldn't stop it. Her hemoglobin was 14, and it dropped to 4.9. She lost two-thirds of the blood in her body and kept bleeding. As she was being rushed to ICU, Susie showed up. Realizing there was a crisis, she turned to leave, and then she overheard a pastor tell Barbara's brother, you need to encourage her. She thinks she's going to die. Something about her blood not clotting. Susie suddenly remembered an event that happened years ago when her and Barbara's niece randomly decided to do blood work on each other. They discovered Barbara's niece had a rare blood disorder. She was warned if she ever started bleeding severely, she could die. Remembering this, Susie ran to her lab, pulled up Barbara's niece's blood results, compared them with Barbara's, and realized she had the same disorder. She immediately contacted Barbara's doctor who administered the remedy. The hemorrhaging stopped and Barbara's life was saved. Ten years earlier, randomly doing blood work on each other <laughs> happens to walk in that day to use the ATM, overhears the pastor's words, remembers the event from ten years earlier. Here's my point for us this morning. I need your attention. Rest in the assurance that God is doing extraordinary things in the ordinary events of your life. Whether it is positive or negative, whether it is suffering or hope, whether it's chapter 1 or chapter 2, it doesn't just so happen. Our hope is in the hands of a sovereign God. Now, here's the pushback. Uh, I, I know some of you would say it because I've heard it said a thousand times. If that were the case, well, then we wouldn't need to do anything. If God's just going to work all this out between Ruth and Boaz, then why does she even need to do anything? And I would say you're right if you want a theology contrary to the Bible. Listen to what the Bible says, and then I want to show you it in Ruth. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Very important. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Who's working? You are. For... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Question right here. Who's working, you or God? Answer, yes. <laughs> it's real interesting and totally clear. Let me give you one more. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Did Paul work or the grace of God in him empowering him to work? Answer, yes. <laughs> in other words, this is huge. Sovereignty 
never removes responsibility. Get up off the couch and go glean. And it's exactly what Ruth does. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. In other words, what I'm trying to show you is that the author has absolutely no problem holding together the tension that Ruth is making a decision to go glean and God is at work in it all. In fact, if anything, sovereignty ought to compel us to live out our faith in hope because faith without works is dead. And so what you see is Ruth responding with obedient faith. And I want to show you four characteristics of her faith quickly. Number one is that faith endures. Faith endures. That is, Ruth has every reason to quit, just like Naomi, to despair and give up. She's starving. She's a stranger. She's lost her husband as well. She has no children as well. She's married into the family of a psycho, crazy mother-in-law. Don't point, right? She's got every reason to say, my life is so hard, I'm done. But what does she do? I love this about Ruth. You talk about a godly woman. She gets up and goes out to the field to glean. Faith does not quit. Look right here in my eyes. If you're discouraged, if you're feeling hopeless, if you're right there on the edge to throwing in the towel and you just say, I can't handle this anymore, listen, faith compels you to keep pressing on, keep moving forward, not to give up because faith without works is dead. Two. Faith not only endures, faith works. That is, it, it, it sweats. It's, it's not lazy. I love verse 7. Look at this. Whew. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Ruth knows that there's a really good place to go when you need food to work. And I just want to say to, to the generation uh, above me, my parents' generation and beyond, I thank you so much uh, for my, my parents certainly have demonstrated an excellent example of people who have worked hard. And I say this generally because there are multitudes of alternative examples or exceptions. But for the most part, my generation and even younger needs a kick in the you-know-where to say, get off the couch and do something. Faith works. Faith is out there in the fields. Faith is not like Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation, remember? Well, he's just holding out for a management position. No, faith rolls up its sleeves and gets to work, even if it means flipping burgers. And you say, well, where are you getting that from? Because do you know what gleaning is? It's not the most honorable of jobs. You see, I get a little bit of insight of what's taking place here because what, what I did during the summer, the hot summer days of, of the South in Tennessee, is we would cut tobacco. Not tobacco, tobacco. That's how you pronounce it in Tennessee, tobacco. And uh, don't send me emails about this illustration, by the way. And so 
what, what I would do is, is there were several different jobs. You would have like a, a knife, almost like an axe type of a, of a tool, and you would pull over the stalk, cut, drop, pull it over, cut, drop, cut, drop cut, drop. And then somebody would be coming behind you with this big, long, like stick with a spike on it. And they would pick it up and spike it and pick it up and spike it and pick it up and spike it. And then take that and put it up on the trailer, which would then be taken into the barn, right? And that was the process. A very similar process is happening here with the harvesting. What happens? Imagine these grains of wheat and men are going along and they're chopping and putting them down and chopping and putting them down and chopping and putting them down. Behind them are what's known as binders. They're likely uh, children or even servant girls, and they're picking these up and binding them together and putting them in piles, and they just keep following them. Where here's gleaning. Gleaning is there's clearly grain that wasn't picked up or stalks that were left unbinded, and the law said that they could come along and pick up all that was left over to be a generous gift to the foreigner or the poor. Meaning, Ruth is doing the low-end job, and she doesn't feel entitled to anything beyond that. She's just happy to work. She's just happy to roll up her sleeves, get out in the field, get pit stains and everything, and work to be able to provide for her and Naomi. And this is the beautiful picture, I love this, between sovereignty and responsibility. It's, I trust God to provide while I go to work. I pray that God will save my family member as I share the gospel with them. Because faith without works is dead. Not only does it endure, not only does it work, faith also risks. Look at verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, this is after she comes home, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. I'm not going to spend much time here other than to say it's very obvious that this is risky business, right? This is, by the way, why Naomi wanted her to stay, uh, go home back in chapter one, because you're risking a lot for a foreigner, a Moabite, to be going out into the fields alone. But Ruth's faith in God allows her to risk the uncertainties of gleaning. And, and the problem, man, I, there, there's so much I could say here, folks, but the problem with comfortable lives is it tends to make us not want to risk anymore. It's almost harder to be as generous as we should be because we have so much. But the beauty of realizing you have nothing is you're willing by faith to risk and step out there no matter what the consequences may be. Here's a fourth and final characteristic of her faith, and that is that faith knows. It's confident. I take this back from verse 2 quickly. Uh, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, you've got to realize something here. When you read that, Ruth doesn't know Boaz from Brad Pitt. She has no idea who Boaz is. She is simply confident in God that he will send her way someone who will be kind to her. 
right? She's just confident. This will preach. You got to see that it's not so much about the how, but the who. You don't always have to know the details of how if you have confidence in a who. Ruth has confidence in God, and that's why she's confident to go out and glean, because faith without works is dead. All right, so here's what we've got so far, and then we'll come to the last piece of the puzzle. How does hope begin to be restored? On one hand, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes you, we view life not existing for us, but existing for the story of God. So we hold tight to the fact that God is sovereign over our story, and He has called us to obey, to, as Pastor Roger would say, to do that next right thing, to faithfully step out and serve and do what God has called you to do, that faith, true faith, works. And when you hold to those two things, eventually hope becomes clear. It may be five days, five years, 50 years, I don't know. That's God's timing, not mine. But if you'll hold on to those two things, sovereignty of God, obedient faith, eventually hope is restored. Because that's where the story now turns turns to. And we'll just touch on this quickly and come back more next week. But we are now introduced to the third main character of the story. And this is where hope realized. He's the answered prayer of Naomi in chapter 1. A man by the name of Bohunk. Boaz. This dude, like I can't even say Boaz, but it's like Boaz. I mean, this guy is a man's man. I, I take it from the Word of God, right? Verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, here it is, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. He is a dude's dude, a man's man. That, that Hebrew for a worthy man, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe uh, someone who's rich. It's used to describe like a man of war. Uh, Boaz likely has battle scars. He's he's a man that has been in the trenches. He is a man's man. Uh, When he walks on the scene, like seagulls start flying around his head, right? His employees do what they do for me in the office. They start singing, how great thou art, right? I'm just kidding, all right? The Lord bless you. No, the Lord bless you. He's so revered by those that work for him. He's the kind of guy that would not wear a sweater vest <laughs> or, or, um, or drink a soy peppermint latte. He wouldn't do that, right? This is all out of the Hebrew. He would never wear pink. Ever would he wear pink. He would never listen to Taylor Swift. Right, that would not be on his uh, iPod. He, he would uh, he would make Chuck Norris do his laundry. Right, I mean that's that's the kind of man. This is a man's man, and absolutely under no circumstances whatsoever would Boaz ever own a cat. <laughs> ever. Ever. It's in the Hebrew. It's right here in the Hebrew. Listen, listen, listen. Ladies, if you have a cat, that is perfectly fine. I don't have anything biblically wrong with you having a cat. But if you're a guy, if you're a guy and you're cuddling up with Fifi, God rest your soul. I, I, have, I have nothing to say or hope for you. Whew. It's why my 
black lab is named Boaz, right? Uh, that's true. That's a true story because Boaz would have a dog, right? Let's, and by, it's all, that was all from the Hebrew, a worthy man. Every word of it right there in the text. And oh, by the way, this Boaz is absolutely in love with God and unbelievably generous to people. He's a man's man. Because look what he does to Ruth, verse 8. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over and she rose to glean. And Boaz instructed his young women saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. And you can keep reading there where she ends up with like 50 pounds of food. It's just amazing. Let me just quickly summarize what Boaz, this man's man, even this picture of manhood, what he does to Ruth. He seeks her. He's a man of intentionality, a man of leadership, a man of responsibility. He supplies for her. You need drink. You can drink what the young men drink. You need a, a small group women's Bible study here. I'll give you all the young women to walk around with them. Listen, honey, whatever you need, I will supply it. And I will protect you. I will shelter you. In fact, Boaz likely called all those young men around and simply said, if you touch her, they will never find your body. Right? Have you ever seen the movie Godfather? That's going to happen to you. Don't lay your finger on her. He protects her from all the dangers that are around. He serves her. He invites her to the table. Ruth, eat. How about a romantic meal of roasted grain? Because there's nothing more romantic than grain. And there Ruth eats, and she doesn't just eat, she eats until she's satisfied. She's never had a meal like this before, and Boaz isn't done. He showers on her abundance. He gives her an ancient Near Eastern version of the doggy bag to take home food upon food upon food to take back to Naomi. In other words, here's the point I'm trying to say. Boaz goes beyond the law and gives her grace. Where have you heard that before? He shows us a picture of what it's like not to be there to be served, but to serve. It's the picture of a Redeemer. 
And notice Ruth's response. In all this generosity, all this grace that he gives her. Look at verse 10. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly, said to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. How could you do this to me? How could you do this for me? In light of who you are, you're, you're a worthy man. You're a good man. You're a godly man. I, I'm a foreigner. I don't even belong here. And yet, not only have you given me what the law requires, you've given me so much more. Like, why would you be so gracious to me? I'm unworthy for such a redeemer. Is it not one of the, the, the most clearest and beautiful pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament as Boaz is pointing us to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who is the worthy man, who sought us, who supplies every need that we have, who provides and protects for us, who serves us, and who has given us abundant life. And our response, if we understand the gospel, is not entitlement. It is not, I deserve this. It's in light of who Jesus is. How could he be so gracious to me? It's humility. Because the moment grace ceases to be amazing, either your view of God has become too small or your view of self has become too big. Here in the field, Ruth experiences abundant, lavish grace from a Redeemer. And that's where hope starts to be restored. Here and we're done. Verse 19. She returns to her mother-in-law and she says, Naomi says, Where did you glean today? Translation, where'd you get that doggy bag? Where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law at whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is, stop, dramatic pause. Remember, Naomi doesn't know that Ruth has been in Boaz's field. Ruth does not know that Naomi knows Boaz. I mean, you got to feel the tension, the, the narrative tension that's building up in the story as one word is about to come out of her mouth. I was in the field of Boaz. Well, who did you say? Boaz? Hased, Hased, the Lord has been kind to the living and the dead. Boaz is one of our relatives. He is a redeemer. It is Romans 8, 28 in Ruth chapter 2. God has worked all things to good for those who are called according to his purpose. Hope begins to be restored. Those glimmers of light of chapter 1 have now become the burning sun. How is hope restored right here? You cling, as uncomfortable as it may be, to the fact that God is sovereign even over the ordinary of life. And that compels you to live, to act, to endure, to risk, that faith works. And as you hold those two things together, eventually someday out 
out of the blue, just so happens, hope comes barreling through into your life with abundance. And so I plead with you, faith family, have a deep faith in the sovereignty of God, regardless of what chapter you're in. And don't give up, husband, wife, Christian, co-worker. Don't give up. Keep doing what God has called you to do faithfully. And I promise you, hope will be restored. And it will be restored in the Redeemer. Not a Redeemer. The Redeemer. Jesus Christ. And so I ask you today as we close, if you're here and you know Jesus, if you know this hope of a Redeemer, here it is. Imagine the trajectory of your life if it weren't for Him. Like rest in that. But I also want to say if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you have not found your hope and salvation in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Today you can turn from your sin. Believe in Him. Put your faith in Him. Because if you don't, you will spend eternity forever and ever and ever saying, if only. If only. If only. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Wow. So amazing. How Your Word speaks to us. I just, I pray so much this morning that our hope would be restored. That our hope would be in uh, the Redeemer, Jesus, who has supplied for us everything in godliness, everything for salvation. He is our hope. And, and there are times we have to cling to the fact that He is sovereign even when it doesn't make sense. But, but that trust and belief in Him compels us to keep living for Him. Not to quit, not to give up, not to toss it aside, but to actually live by faith. And in this beautiful mystery of just getting up one morning and going to work, getting up one morning and looking at email, getting up one morning and going to church, something extraordinary happens in the ordinary and hope comes alive. We know that to be true. God, may we cling to that this morning in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.